This is Guns and Butter. Sarah Stewart is the person who has discovered the cancer-causing virus in the first place. She is the world expert on it. And in 1960, right when they're starting this, she transfers from the National Institute to the National Public Health Service. I mean, an odd career move, except for the fact that it puts her in control of the facility in New Orleans where they're mutating the monkey viruses trying to develop an anti-cancer vaccine. And, you know, they all think they're going to win, you know, and come out with an anti-cancer vaccine that could be used to stop the cancer epidemic from the uh, polio vaccine. But when this thing happens in 62 with the Russian missiles, it changes the whole complexion of the thing. And what happens is they start working on, they say, we're going to use the radiation to make this stuff more powerful rather than benign. And instead of making a vaccine, we're going to make a biological weapon that we can inject into somebody like Fidel Castro, and he will die and they'll never be blamed on us, because as we all know, you can't give anybody cancer. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Edward T. Haslam. Today's show, Dr. Mary's Monkey, Part 1. Edward Haslam is an author and researcher. He spent the first 35 years of his life in New Orleans. His father was a surgeon and taught at the Tulane Medical School, where he was a colleague of Dr. Mary Sherman, a pathologist, orthopedic surgeon, and one of the top cancer researchers in America. Ed Haslam personally heard and saw things that involved the investigation into the Kennedy assassination, the murder of one of his father's colleagues, and claims of biological weapons to be used for political purposes. In 1969, he commented that, if there is a bizarre global epidemic involving cancer and monkey virus, 30 years from now, at least we'll know where it came from. In the 1980s, he stumbled upon hard evidence connecting people involved in the JFK assassination investigation to the medical community in New Orleans. He is the author of Dr. Mary's Monkey. Edward Haslam, welcome. Thank you very much, Bonnie. Good to be here. Well, first of all, I would like to congratulate you on a terrific book. Just absolutely terrific. I could not... Put it down. July 21st, 2014 marks the 50th anniversary of the murder of Dr. Mary Sherman and the publication of the updated edition of your blockbuster book, Dr. Mary's Monkey. In the prologue to your new edition of Dr. Mary's Monkey, you write that the death of this one woman unravels much of our nation's secret history. This one murder helps us understand why we have been lied to with such conviction for so many years. You say that writing this book was difficult, stressful, and dangerous. Quoting from your book, that what began as an investigation into the single murder morphed into consideration of epidemics which killed millions of people and which cost billions of dollars. It unveils the contamination of hundreds of millions of doses of the polio vaccine with dozens of monkey viruses. It spotlights the epidemic of soft tissue cancers that swept our country. It became an investigation into an underground medical laboratory that was accidentally discovered during an investigation into the JFK assassination, a 
laboratory which secretly irradiated cancer-causing monkey viruses to develop a biological weapon. You write that this story has followed you throughout your life. You grew up and lived as an adult in New Orleans, Louisiana. Please explain how the mystery surrounding the murder of Dr. Mary Sherman on July 21st 1964, and events surrounding her death have haunted you since childhood. Wasn't your father a colleague of Dr. Sherman's? Yes, Dr. Sherman, um, Dr. Mary Sherman was a orthopedic surgeon, and she taught at Tulane Medical School in New Orleans, and she ran a cancer laboratory um, for Dr. Alton Oshner at his clinic, the Oshner Clinic, which is one of the big regional medical uh, clinics in the country. It happens to be in New Orleans. And my father also taught orthopedic surgery at Tulane Medical School. So Mary Sherman and my father were both friends and colleagues. Uh, my father was out of Harvard Medical School in the Navy, and Mary Sherman was out of the University of Chicago. And my father had like the utmost respect for this woman. I mean, he was pretty much in awe of her Within the um, structure of orthopedic surgeons in the country, um, Mary was the chair of the pathology committee of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, which made her one of the highest-ranking women in American medicine. She was also widely published in two fields, well, three fields, one being cancer. Uh, she was an expert in um, bone cancers, and uh, when the University of Texas went to write some um, uh, release a book on tumors of the bone and soft tissue. They had several articles by her in there where she even challenged the, the language of cancer and suggested that everything needed to be renamed in order to make some kind of sense out of it all. Um, further, she was also widely published in the area of radiation. She was one of the people bringing radiation into, into medicine. And up at the University of Chicago, where much of this radiation stuff starts, I mean, that's where you have the first sustained nuclear reaction with Enrico Fermi and stuff. She was actually working with Enrico Fermi up there and was very close to him. And you have the others up there, Harold Urey and, and uh, Zyloid and those guys that started nuclear power. And so Mary Sherman had amazing connections. Um, she was highly respected all internationally as well as nationally. And so when she was murdered in 1964, it was big news in our family. I mean, Mary occasionally came out to the house. I remember sitting on her lap once as a child. And so I wound up hearing things through the grapevine um, that the public didn't hear. I mean, my father, for example, was asked to go take a look at the um, the body in the morgue for a second opinion on, on the burns of what happened to her. And my father told my mother, and my mother eventually told me what really happened to Mary Sherman. But what the public was told was that an intruder broke into Mary Sherman's house and in an act of violence, stabbed her seven or eight times, and uh, then set her naked body on fire. And so it was all pretty sensational stuff, and there were a lot of uncharitable rumors going around. And, um, and I heard from my, from my mother that Mary Sherman's right arm was missing. And that was pretty strange, and nobody else that I knew of knew about it. And 30 years after all this happened, um, I went down to the public library, and I was able to get the 
police reports, the autopsy reports, the homicide reports um, on it, and all of the uh, published press coverage, the newspaper articles above the fold for two weeks. And um, I, I read everything. And it was only then, as I had it spread out on my kitchen table, that I started to realize where the problem was. The problem was that the public was never told Mary Sherm's right arm was missing. This is the main fact in the case. I mean, this is like not mentioning that Nicole Simpson's throat got cut. So why wasn't the public told about this? And even in the the, the last paragraph of the last newspaper article that appeared at the end of the two weeks said, oh, yes, this fire, the mattress fire smoldered for some time and burned away some of the flesh from the doctor's right arm. Well, this is not a question of burning away some of the flesh. I I have the photo up on my website, and it's now in the back of the book, um, the new edition, the hardcover edition of the book. And you can see that Mary Sherman's right arm has been disintegrated by heat. It is gone, as is her ribcage. And you can stand there and see the internal organs of her body. Then you look at the photograph, the crime scene photo with the detectives in the room, and you go, Wow, the curtains next to her bed didn't burn. The books on the nightstand didn't burn. The wooden furniture didn't burn. Nothing burned except the mattress. So how do you get temperatures high enough to disintegrate bone? And and then when you look at the photo of her, you realize that right next to that big black charred section, about 20% of her body is destroyed and it's all carbonized. Right next to that is her hair, unburned hair. Well, we've all burned hair on our arms being around stoves just because it's the easiest thing on the body to burn. And, and technically, bones don't even burn uh, you know, unless you get them up to thousands of degrees. I mean, normally in a, a cremation oven, which is about uh, 1,600 degrees for about two hours, uh, when what's finished at the end of the cremation is bones and teeth, and they grind that up and say, here are your ashes. So th- there was some something didn't work. Something did not make sense about the crime scene. And then I asked the obvious question, so what burned off her arm? I mean, the toaster? There's nothing in the apartment that could have possibly done that damage to her body. And once you realize that, you're left with the inescapable conclusion that whatever happened to Mary Sherman's body happened somewhere else, and they brought her back to her apartment to fake a murder scene. At that point, you know you have a cover-up, and you have to get to the questions, what are they, why are they covering this up? What is it that they're afraid of? Why did they go to all of this trouble to bring her back to her apartment? And in her apartment complex, there's about 13 apartments, and, and it's all oriented around a little courtyard, and everybody kind of knows everybody, and it's two stories. You know, so it's not one of these great things with hundreds of apartments. And... Neighbors who normally would hear Dr. Sherman walking around in her slippers at night didn't hear anything. So how do you do all this in silence? You know, and these were the initial questions that uh, that I got to when I started looking at the documents. And the other thing that that intersects with this that uh, that was one of my initial questions too was this all happened in New Orleans in the 1960s. Well, Jim Garrison was the district attorney of New Orleans in the 1960s, and as um, Oliver Stone pointed out in his JFK movie, 
Jim Garrison starts investigating Oswald and the Kennedy assassination down in New Orleans. And because of that, he does an interview in Playboy magazine in 1967, the October issue. And in in that, he gets a question about cancer, from um, about cancer killing Jack Ruby. And he says, well, I can't answer that because I don't have any evidence on it. But I can tell you that my investigators have determined that this um, Dr. Mary Sherman, who was killed... Uh, murdered back in 64, was involved in some secret cancer research with David Ferry and some other doctors in New Orleans. Well, this this is a mind-boggling comment because, as I've pointed out, Mary Sherman is a world-class doctor with heavy credentials and contacts all over the country, and David Ferry has no medical credentials. He's a, he's a loose cannon. He's a defrocked priest. He had his commercial pilot's license pulled for basically a pederastry charge, and he's got one foot in the mob and one foot in the CIA, and he's flying missions into Cuba for the CIA. So what is this political loose cannon doing working with this world-class doctor on some kind of secret cancer experiments? And I didn't know, but I wanted to find out. And one of the things that Garrison had said was that his investigators had found a treatise on cancer that he had written in his apartment when they went to um, investigate it when he was murdered or died, whether Ferry was murdered or not, it's another issue. But when he died, the investigators went in there because they had him under surveillance, and they found this cancer treatise. And you know, I looked for it for years, and somebody finally found it, heard I was looking for it, and they found it up in the National Archives and sent it to me. And it's a very interesting document. The first thing I'll say about it is, though it was found in David Ferry's apartment, I will guarantee you that David Ferry did not write it, because it's written by somebody at a very high level in the cancer community, and they're talking about inviting professors from medical schools to come in and demonstrate certain things, and and they're dealing with very sophisticated techniques and equipment, and it's very clear that the people who wrote this document know that viruses can cause cancer. I'm speaking with author and researcher Edward Haslam. Today's show, Dr. Mary's Monkey, Part 1. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You mentioned at one point that the American Cancer Society's brochure on facts about cancer does not even mention viral theories of cancer. Why do you think this is? Well, one of the ways you catch these people is they overplay their parts. They overcompensate. Um, The idea that viruses could cause cancer was on the cover of Time magazine in 1959. Okay, it was a very public idea. And once they realized that they had a problem with the polio vaccine, which we'll be discussing in more detail here in a little bit, um, and the problem was that there was a cancer-causing virus in the polio vaccine, then they changed the, the drill and started saying that cancer could not be caused by a virus. Because if cancer cannot be caused by a virus, you don't have to worry about somebody saying there's a cancer-causing virus in the polio vaccine. But what happened on the story in this, I mean, most people familiar with the polio vaccine have no idea that the polio vaccine was grown on monkey kidney cells from the rhesus monkey. And 
1957, two researchers up at the National Cancer Institute who were working with a bunch of hamsters at the time found a virus that caused cancer. They named it polyoma, poly meaning many, oma meaning tumors. So this one virus caused multiple types of cancer in a variety of uh, small mammals in the laboratory. And the moment they were able to prove that to the satisfaction of the management of the National Cancer Institute, uh, Congress started throwing big money at them. And everyone was getting things like electron microscopes and stuff. And they started cataloging um, the viruses they were finding in the monkey labs. And um, by the time they found the 40th virus, which they named, uh, you know, simian is a word for monkey. It's a scientific term. So they named it simian virus number 40 or monkey virus number 40. And that they realized that that was the polyoma virus that Stuart and Eddie had discovered earlier. And they found that the natural host for this virus was the rhesus monkey. Well, that was a really big problem for everybody because they realized that they had grown the polio vaccine on rhesus monkey kidney cells. And when they took out the polio for the vaccine, they got all the other viruses that were in there. And they asked the excruciating question, and this is now in 1959, and they've been releasing the polio vaccine. They released it in 1955. Um, Had they just mass inoculated the entire American population with a cancer-causing virus? And they found the virus in um, the polio uh, uh, vaccine, and they estimate that it was in 200 or 198 million um, doses of the polio vaccine, and they didn't realize until they had already released 100 million doses. So this, at, at this point, is the biggest mistake in history. I mean, nobody has ever made a mistake of this magnitude. And they didn't want to tell the public they had done it until they could figure out something to do about it. So it basically stamped it a secret. And it's at that point that places like the American Cancer Society stopped talking about viruses. They said 200 possible causes of cancer and the word virus wasn't even in there, even though it had been on the cover of Time magazine not long before. Now, the simian virus number 40, or SV40, that you mentioned, was a a name given to this polyoma virus. Now, poly means many, right? And oma, tumors, right. And and like you said, the poliovirus was grown in monkey kidneys. It was discovered that cancer-causing monkey viruses contaminated the polio vaccines, which you've been saying. What is the evidence that we are in the midst of a cancer epidemic? Well, the moment I read Bernice Eddy's warning, essentially, about this, that, that it was in the polio uh, vaccine, I said, she's trying to tell us, she's trying to warn us there's going to be an epidemic, and if she's right, it ought to be in the numbers. So I went to the medical library, and I got the National Cancer Institute numbers on um, which were measured during Nixon's war on cancer from 1972 to 1988. Uh, the chart is in the back of my book from NCI, and I took those numbers and um, put them on my computer to make graphs. And once you do that, you notice that there is an obvious eruption of soft tissue cancers, that's breast, prostate, uh, melanoma, and lymphoma that uh, starts 
you know, the the chart doesn't start to 72, and the um, contaminated vaccines were 55 through 63, though there are other issues like mother to child and sexual transmission and stuff. But what you see is you see in these numbers these four um, um, dramatic increases in the incidence rates of these soft tissue cancers, and it's all coming in right after the polio uh, vaccine. So the question is, are these two events connected? Is the cancer-causing virus in the polio vaccine responsible for the epidemic of cancer? And the other thing is just, you know, I'm a great believer in common sense, okay? Just ask people, is there anybody in your friend or family circle that has cancer? I mean, I ask this question in public all the time, and nobody ever raises the hand to say, no, I don't know anybody. Everybody knows somebody that's got cancer. And, and that cancer used to be extremely rare. So we got back, and, and I've done the numbers on this, we got back about 20 cases of cancer for every one case of polio at the height of the polio epidemic. And the media was quite happy to run around and say, epidemic, epidemic, polio epidemic, you know, in, in the late 50s and mid-50s. And they don't really use that same kind of terminology when they're talking to cancer. I, I hardly ever hear, in fact, never in the mainstream, have, it, have cancer referred to as a cancer epidemic. But we are certainly in the middle of one. And, um, you know, I think it's, it's a reasonable argument to present that um, the cancer-causing viruses, the SV40 in particular, but also some other ones that were in the polio vaccines of the the Salk and the Sabin vaccines, I'm going to talk about them in more detail in a little bit, um, are the trigger for why we have this cancer epidemic today. Right. And when you talk about a cancer epidemic, you're talking specifically about four types of soft tissue cancer, right? Because other forms of cancer the rate didn't rise that dramatically, did it? No. In the chart that I have in the back of the book, and I just had to stick with that chart because they say some things and don't say other things. One of the things I noticed was if you say, there's about 20 types of cancer there. If you say, okay, well, here are the four that are going up, and I'm going to take lung out of this conversation just because of the cigarette issue. and I don't want that to be a point of confusion. What happened to everything else? the other 16 types of cancer. Well, that line is flat. It didn't increase there. And what happens with soft tissues is the cells turn over faster. And in fact, the fastest cell in the body is the neuroglia in the brain. And child brain tumors went up so much before this 1972 cutoff point where we start to see it in this that it actually started to level out some. And then there are some other cancers, like example, on pleural mesothelioma. There were four or five cases of that cancer per year in the United States before the polio epidemic. And now there's about 2,500 cases per year. So that one went up dramatically, but they don't happen to show those numbers on that um, piece of paper that I was uh, using as my, as my reference. Now, your book, Dr. Mary's Monkey, reads, it's actually a murder mystery. It's a page turner. 
and you start from the very beginning in your childhood with all your questions about these mysterious goings on in New Orleans where you grew up. And as you mentioned before, you had actually sat on Dr. Mary Sherman's lap when you were a child. You devote a chapter to a biography of David Ferry, of all people, who, of course, uh, is primarily known for his involvement in the assassination of President John Kennedy. How does David Ferry factor into your investigation of Dr. Mary Sherman's murder? Well, the, the rumors I heard originally were that David Ferry was involved in an underground medical laboratory with Dr. Mary Sherman, and Garrison's investigators were suspicious that they were working on something to kill Fidel Castro. Um, in my first version of the book, way back in 1995, I, I had that idea. I had heard those rumors, but I didn't have a witness. Then in, about, in 2000, the year 2000, I was contacted by CBS's uh, 60 Minutes um, news team. And they said they were investigating a woman who kept telling them that she was the laboratory technician in the laboratory that I had written about involving David Ferry and, and Mary Sherman. And did I want to talk to them? And, and yes, I did. And they finally decided not to. They investigated this woman for 14 months and spent more money on that than anything they'd ever done in their 20-year their history. But they decided not to air it for some reason. But because of their introduction, I got to know this woman and got to know her background and, and her story. And I am, am completely confident that she is uh, the real deal. And she, this is a really important part of the story, she watched her grandmother die as a middle schooler, okay? And she was just determined from, from from the first days of adolescence that she wanted to be the person to cure cancer because she hated the disease. And during high school, she starts doing all these experiments, and she's got access to, to radiation. She's got access to uh, um, cancer. She's giving cancer to mice in seven days, okay, by the time she's a senior in high school. Well, when the and she's getting help from like the army and, and places like that. I mean, she's she's got connections through um, this WizKid program that she's getting a lot of help from people, sophisticated people. And in uh, the spring of 1961, she actually goes up and crashes the press briefing of the American Cancer Society, which is being held. Uh, just up the road from where she lives, was being held in St. Petersburg. And um, she's got her high school press pass and all, all of her research notes, and they're getting ready to kick her out. And somebody up at the head table said, oh, wait a minute, before you kick this girl out, let's find out who she is and, and why she's doing this, because we've never had this happen before. And she said, i got all this research. I'm giving cancer to mice in seven days. And they said, well... That's interesting because, like, nobody is doing it that fast. Are, are you serious about this? And she said, yeah, i got everything back in my lab. And so they um, make some phone calls, and a team of people go back with her to her laboratory in Bradenton, Florida, at Manatee High School, and they realize that she is very serious. <laughs> she's, what she's doing is very dangerous, too. They close out her lab. But she... They are convinced that she is actually doing what she said she was doing. And therefore, they bring her up to Buffalo, New York, 
to the Roswell Park Cancer Institute, and they have her spend the summer working in Dr. Moore's lab. Dr. Moore's the director of the thing, and they teach her how to handle cancer-causing viruses, and they um, teach her how to do certain blood things, and they train her on radiation more officially than she had been trained before. And um, we have newspaper articles on all the covering all this stuff. I mean, she's got the documentary on this. And after they've trained her, they've got experiments they want her to do because these guys all know about the contamination of polio vaccine. The leadership knows, all right? It's the public that doesn't know. And they've got questions that they don't want to ask in public. For example, if you take somebody who's had this uh, contaminated vaccine, they've got SV40 in their blood, and you give them a chest X-ray, will the X-ray trigger the SV40 to start the cancer? I mean, that's an enormous question because that's the entire use of radiation in American medicine. And they've got Judy working on this at the University of Florida. Uh, Senator Smathers put her in there, and uh, she, you know, she, she doesn't have to pay tuition. She doesn't have to pay room and board, but she's doing all this research for them. She's got access to the radiation equipment, and she is sending reports back to Dr. Oshner on a monthly basis. And this is happening in the fall of um, 1962. I'm speaking with author and researcher Edward Haslam. Today's show, Dr. Mary's Monkey, Part 1. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, the other thing that happens in the fall of 1962 is the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. And if you live in the South, you know, it's kind of big magnifying glass because you're the ones close to Cuba. All right. And I remember sitting there as a kid watching the big circle on the television set of the range of the missiles. And New Orleans is inside the range of the missiles. I'm sitting in New Orleans wondering if we're going to get nuked before the late show, you know. And the whole thing with this is the Cold War and people kind of forget about the, the the sins of the paranoid age of the Cold War. But the um, when Castro took over Cuba, there was an embargo after he nationalized, you know, the Rockefeller's factories and the Bush's oil platforms and stuff. And that embargo cost New Orleans 25% of its trade. Well, it trade's the business of New Orleans, like cars are the business of Detroit. So... New Orleans was really, like, on edge about Castro and in the first place, and then Castro is threatening to take his revolution to Central and South America, and if he does that, there go the bananas and there go the coffee beans, and, and it, the effect, economic effect on New Orleans would be huge, and then you add these Russian nuclear missiles on top of it, and, and the people in New Orleans are starting to say, this Castro guy's got to go. Well, one of the things we know today about that through the church committee and stuff is we know, and the CIA has admitted that they were working with the mafia on means of killing Fidel Castro. Well, one of the means they were doing was weaponizing this this cancer. And and, and one of the things, I'm kind of jumping around here, and, and forgive me for this, but the this timeline of when they find out about the um, contamination of polio vaccine. They know this by the late 50s, by 1959. And the question is, what do they, what did they do once they knew? All right, and they got really busy trying to make a anti-cancer vaccine. 
Well, today we have the HPV vaccine, so there's no hiding the fact that there's cancer-causing viruses, and they finally developed vaccines. And back then, it was a really off-the-wall off the idea. And it, but they knew the dimensions of the problem was, like, bigger than war. I mean, you know, this was horrible. So they set up this medical Manhattan project where they were going to use radiation to mutate the monkey viruses. And they needed this done on, on federal property because nobody wanted it done on their property. And they set this up on the grounds of the U.S. Public Health Service Hospital in New Orleans. Now, this hospital has a big campus, got a 13 buildings on it, a great big central hospital in the middle. But in, in the back, they had some smaller buildings, and they set up this linear particle accelerator in what became known as the Infectious Disease Laboratory Building. And they assembled like a, 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 an A-team to work on it. They, this was done under the direction of Alton Oshner, who, who had been president of the cancer, uh, American Cancer Society. I've got his FBI file. He's got a 40-year history of secret assignments with the American government, particularly the military. He's, he's done stuff with the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, Public Health Service, FBI, and one other unnamed agency. And what and we've got other people in town that we can identify who have uh, biowarfare backgrounds, like Jose Rivera. Um, he goes from uh, working in Fort Detrick to um, being the head of the National Institute of Neurology and Blindness. And, and between those two assignments, we find him in New Orleans, right down the street from the Linear Particle Accelerator, teaching introductory biology at Loyola University. So he's a half mile from Oshner's house and a half mile from this um, public health facility. And there are others. And Sarah Stewart is the, the person who has discovered the cancer-causing virus in the first place. She is the, the world expert on it. And in 1960, right when they're starting this, she transfers from the National Institute to the National Public Health Service. I mean, an odd career move, except for the fact that it puts her in control of the facility in New Orleans where they're mutating the monkey viruses trying to develop an anti-cancer vaccine. And, you know, they all think they're going to win, you know, and come out with an anti-cancer vaccine that could be used to stop the cancer epidemic from the uh, polio vaccine. But when this thing happens in 62 with the Russian missiles, it changes the whole complexion of the thing. And what happens is they start working on they say, we're going to use the radiation to make this stuff more powerful rather than benign. And um, instead of making a vaccine, we're going to make a biological weapon that we can inject into somebody like Fidel Castro, and he will die and he'll never be blamed on us because, as we all know, you can't give anybody cancer. So that's what's going on there. And in the spring of 1963, Judy gets a phone call. Now, you're talking about Judith Very Baker, right, who wrote Lee and Me. Right. Judith Very Baker, is the, her memoir, autobiography, is called Me and Lee, How I Came to Know, Love, and Lose Lee Harvey Oswald. But she hasn't met Lee Oswald yet, okay? She's just down at the University of Florida doing these cancer experiments for Dr. Oshner. And Oshner calls her and says, Judy, how would you like to skip the last two years of college and... Um, start medical school in September and we'll pay your tuition and your room and board and um, give you a stipend and you'll be working this summer under the direction of that famous cancer doctor, um, Dr. Mary Sherman. 
And um, this will be a really important assignment for the country. And um, so would you like to do this, Judy? And it's a hard question to say no to. So she says yes, and she heads into New Orleans. Um, Oshner sends her a bus ticket. And when she gets there, she gets there a little early, and they kind of have a loose cannon on the deck. And so they send somebody in to be her babysitter. And this person is, they've got a cover job set up for her. Um, they've got an uh, apartment. They need to get her in. But again, she's a little bit early, so things aren't working quite right. But this person they send in is from New Orleans. He's got one foot in the mafia because of his family connections there. He's got the other foot in the CIA because he's been working with them for years. And his name is Lee Harvey Oswald. And he is a operational support person helping out with this secret laboratory. And what's going on is they, they have a string of laboratories set up across the city. One of them is in David Ferry's apartment. And across the street from David Ferry's apartment, we have what we call the Mouse House, which is where my girlfriend Barbara lived. And they have thousands of mice in cages in that house. And they have two Cuban um, guys in there who are taking care of the mice. And when the mice develop these big tumors, they put them into a cardboard box. And they bring them over to David Ferry's house. And then Judy and Lee go over to David Ferry's house, sometimes with David and sometimes without him. And um, they kill the mice. They cut out the tumors. They grind up the tumors in a blender. They make, they put all this stuff into test tubes. They make slides um, and stuff. And then they pack all that up into like a lunchbox kind of thing. And then Judy cleans up the place to laboratory standards puts everything away. Now it looks like a normal kitchen again, so nobody will even imagine it was the laboratory. And then she takes all this stuff over to Mary Sherman's apartment. She has a key to Mary Sherman's apartment. So she just goes and lets herself in, puts the stuff in the refrigerator or whatever, and sits down and reads for a while and then goes back to work. Now, Lee Oswald and Judy, Judith Very Baker are both working at the Riley Coffee Company. This was a cover job set up for them, and they go there and they act like they're working, and then they sneak out. So the other employees aren't really aware of what's happening, and they sneak out and go over to David Ferry's apartment to do all this stuff I just described, and then they go back and clock out. And what's interesting is when you get into researching Oswald and the Warren Commission and all that stuff, um, his supervisor... Um, from the Riley Coffee Company did a affidavit, and the affidavit says, oh, he was a horrible employee. He was never there. He was sneaking out all the time. And I'm reading this, and this is not live testimony, so there's nobody cross-examining, just an affidavit. But if I'm saying, boy, I, my question would be, if you're his supervisor and you know he's sneaking out and cheating the company, why are you approving his time cards? Well, the point is, he wasn't approving his time cards, and Oswald's time cards were not in the 24 volumes of the Warren Commission stuff. The person that was approving Oswald's time cards was William Moynihan, who was an ex-FBI agent who was worked with Alton Oshner and set up their Inca organization. And this is the organization that did the radio debates with Lee Oswald when he was in New Orleans and produced the record on that. 
these are the people that are approving Oswald's time cards, and they know he's sneaking out. And when Moynihan is not there, Judy is Moynihan's secretary. The cancer researcher is Moynihan's secretary at the coffee bean company. I mean, he can't make this stuff up. Okay? And she is approving Oswald's time cards. And her initials are on there. So after the Oliver Stone movie with the JFK Records Act and we got permission to get in some of these files, we found Oswald's time cards that the FBI had scooped up from the Riley Coffee Company, and there are Judy's initials on them. And if they had put those in the Warren Commission, if the Warren Commission was anything other than a sham, and I don't think it was, but if you had a real investigator there, the investigator would say, whose, whose initials are those? And that would have led them to Judy. And by that point in time, Judy was in, in hiding. Lee had already been murdered. She was told that if she spoke up, she'd be murdered too. And so it wasn't until all this stuff came out after the Oliver Stone movie that we started to put some of these pieces back together. I'm speaking with author and researcher Edward Haslam. Today's show, Dr. Mary's Monkey, Part 1. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, with regard to what you discovered about an underground medical laboratory in a secluded and sleepy residential district of New Orleans, we're talking about the underground laboratory of David Ferry, which you have just been discussing, and the attempt to create a bioweapon, that is, to cause a fast-acting cancer. Now, wasn't uh, there an experiment done not only on mice and monkeys, but wasn't a human also involved, uh, tested with this uh, bioweapon? Yes, and they have what I call the loop here. And so after Judy cuts out the tumors and they put all the stuff in test tubes, they take the most aggressive cancers and they go back and give them more radiation. They're deliberately trying to ramp up the um, um, aggressiveness of this cancer. And they went from killing 50 mice a day all the way up to killing 500 mice a day. They started using it on South American monkeys and then later the more expensive African monkeys. And at that point, they had there was only thing one, one thing left to do is to test it and see if it worked on a human because a lot of people feel that humans are different and all that stuff. And so they had to prove it or they felt they had to prove it. And the question is, where do you get a human you can kill that nobody's going to miss? And their solution to that was to get somebody from death row in Angola Penitentiary, sort of in upstate Louisiana. And they needed to bring the person over to, to, there's a mental hospital not far from Angola for the criminally insane. I mean, it's kind of an industry in that part of the state. It's rural and kind of KKK area. At any rate, so they needed to bring the prisoner from Angola in a van over to this uh, East Louisiana uh, mental hospital in Jackson, Louisiana. And because this is a hospital for the criminally insane, it's got a lot of security around it. I mean, fences and guards and guns and all that stuff. And so when they brought the biological weapon up there, they needed to bring somebody who would inject it into the person, and they needed to get the weapon and the person and everybody onto the grounds of the hospital in order to do this. So they had a plan. And they said, well, we're going to 
take a black Cadillac, drive up from New Orleans. We're going to have this big, distinguished-looking guy driving it. That's uh, a nice, wavy, gray hair. Looks like a politician and stuff. And, uh, and then we're going to um, get in line. We're going to wait for the van to come over from the penitentiary and go rendezvous with it out on the highway. And we'll drive up to the front gate of the mental hospital with a black Cadillac right behind the van, and we'll have an employee from the hospital in the black Cadillac, and we'll get waved in. Everybody get waved in with the uh, prisoner transfer, and it'll all just look like a convoy, and, and nobody will suspect a thing. That was a pretty good plan, but they had to figure out where they were going to wait. And Jackson, Louisiana is a little tiny town. Not, not Jackson, Mississippi is a big city, right? Jackson, Louisiana, you could throw a frisbee through it, okay? And other than this uh, mental hospital, there's not much there except a barbershop. And, but about 20 miles down the road, 15, 20 miles down the road, is what we would call in most states the county uh, seat, the courthouse for East Feliciana Parish. And... They have a lot of black Cadillacs sitting there, um, you know, because lawyers and judges and uh, people like that come and go uh, out of the courthouse. So their plan is to show up in the middle of the afternoon um, in a hot August afternoon in rural Louisiana, and they're going to park the car underneath an oak tree and wait for the payphone to ring to tell them that the prisoner was leaving Angola and they could go rendezvous with him. It's a nice plan. But what they and they pick a date on the calendar kind of arbitrarily. They pick August 29th to do this. Well, they forgot to read the newspaper because on August 28th, Martin Luther King gave his "I Have a Dream" speech in Washington D.C. And the Congress on Racial Equality knew it was coming, so the Congress on Racial Equality had a black voter registration drive set up for this white Klan-controlled town. Uh, on the following day in order to ride on the momentum of the King speech. And this was that civil rights summer where there were so many problems all across the South, and there had been problems in Louisiana. And so what was going on in this square at the time is on one side of the square, you had the blacks in a, uh, a line waiting to register to vote. You had the, the whites standing on the other side of the square with their arms crossed. And you had the sheriff, the, the marshal of the town, standing right in the middle, trying to make sure there's no trouble, like there had been in some other towns in Louisiana. And into this scene drives the black Cadillac. And the marshal says, you know, who's this? Press? Feds? Outside agitators? So the marshal goes over to the car and says, may I see your ID? And the guy driving the car rolls down the window, hands him his ID, and says, I am Clay Shaw from the International Trademark. Out of the back seat of the car gets this young white guy who goes and stands in lines with the blacks trying to register to vote. He's just testing the system to see if they'll let him register because he's white, even though he doesn't live in the area. And that guy signs the log um, where you sign in to register to vote, and his name was Lee Harvey Oswald. So the essence to Jim Garrison's case in New Orleans was that they had associated Clay Shaw with Lee Oswald. And Shaw said, well, I never knew Oswald, and he didn't get convicted because they couldn't prove it. But the town marshal had the evidence. And when the House Select Committee on Assassinations came around in the 70s, they subpoenaed him, and they flew him up to Washington, D.C., and they had him give congressional testimony about this. 
but they took it in executive session so they could stamp it secret. And for the next 16 years, the Congress, the House Select Committee on Assassinations, knew that Clay Shaw was associated with Lee Oswald, but they didn't tell the public about it. It wasn't until after the Oliver Stone movie comes out that we we discover that. And so that happens on August 29th. That's when the prisoners injected. And what they needed to find out is whether the cancer weapon worked. So two days later, Lee, dri- Lee Oswald drives Judith Barry Baker from New Orleans up to Jackson, not in a black Cadillac, in this old green car called a Kaiser, and they pick up a employee from the thing, and Judy's dressed like a nurse, so she'll fit in at the mental hospital, and they go to the grounds of the mental hospital, and Judy performs one of these blood tests that she's been trained to do. She's one of the only people in the country who knows how to do this stuff, and she is able to determine that the cancer has kicked in. So they now know all they have to do is wait, and he drives her back to New Orleans that night. That's on August 31st. Now, part of, I've got new material in this book. This is more than just, um, uh, it's a hardcover instead of a softcover because we wanted a library quality book. But I've got 25 pages of new material in there, including documents from the FBI, CIA, CDC, and NOPD. And a lot of the info I have gained since uh, 2007, when the, um, Dr. Mary's Monkey first came out, um, has come to me. And some of it has come in through the radio when I was doing um, radio interviews in Louisiana. And one day I got a phone call from a, a guy who um, said, have you ever heard about the woman that lived in Mary Sherman's apartment that knew Lee Harvey Oswald? And yes, I had read about her in Joan Mellon's book, and uh, her name was Victoria Hawes. And I talked about her a little bit on on the air, and and this very interesting story she tells about uh, whenever Lee Oswald would come over to visit um, her neighbor, Juan Valdez, they would flush the toilets like 25, 30 times in a row, which didn't make any sense to me at all, but I've, I've seen a lot of strange stuff with the story, so I've learned to be patient and figure things out. Anyway, this guy, this caller says, would you like to talk to these people? I'm, you know, I'm somebody's brother-in-law or um, by marriage or something. And I, I said, yeah, if you can put me in contact with them, sure. And long story, I'm talking to this guy and he finally tells me, he says, did you know that Mary Sherman's apartment was burglarized? Not the night that she was murdered, but some months before. I said, yeah, I had heard about that. Um, and he said, well, they mentioned me in the burglary report. I said, well, how do you know that? He says, well, I've got a copy of it. And so I said, may I see it? Okay. So he gives me the copy, NOPD burglary report. Mary Sherman's apartment is burglarized the very night that Lee brings Judy back from the mental hospital where they determined that the patient had cancer. It's August 31st, 1963. The interesting point is that that morning Mary left for London for a month. And the burglary didn't happen until Lee got back in town. And when I look at the burglary report, I'm seeing, oh, they stole $35 of cash, $350 of furs, some jewelry, and they sold, I'm going to put this in $2,014 so we can all understand it. They sold $12,500 worth of miscellaneous stuff. 
that was not jewelry, money, and furs. So I'm saying, what did she have in her apartment that was worth that much money? And, and so I contacted Judy. I said, Judy, you were in Mary Sherman's apartment. Can you tell me what she had in there that might be worth um, $12,500? And Judy sent me back a list of oil immersion microscopes and, and autoclaves and certain things for handling um machines for keeping um, test tubes moving and stuff like that. And, and it all added up to $12,500. So what it's looking like to me is they cleaned out Mary Sherman's apartment on the last day of the project. And the next day is when Judy gets kicked out of town. She, she has to leave and go back to Florida. So um, they cleaned up the operation right at the time that um, Judy, Judy protests on this, by the way. She didn't sign up for killing people, all right? So she writes a note to Oshner, and Oshner says, you know, I told you never to write anything down. What are you trying to do here? And so he starts getting concerned. They might roll on him, so he cleans up everything and gets rid of Judy. And Judy continues to stay in contact with Lee. They have a very close relationship at that time, uh, by that time, but through the telephone. And she keeps talking to Lee all the way up to the Wednesday before the uh, assassination, so that would be November 20th. And um, Lee apparently had penetrated a ring of people very serious about killing Kennedy, and Lee realized as early as, like, July 29th, he tells Judy, these guys are going to kill Kennedy. I mean, they're serious about it, and they've asked me to do a bunch of stuff in August, which is going to make me look like a communist, and I think they're doing that to set me up as the patsy. So Lee knows this is coming. He figures it out, and it's only in August. Everybody talks about Lee's communist activities and stuff in New Orleans. It's only on a couple of occasions, right? And one of them is on August 9th, where he gets arrested for this fake street fight they were in. And on August 16th, he's standing out in front of an international trademark handing out uh, Fair Play for Cuba uh, leaflets with the television cameras rolling. And then that's WDSU television. And then WDSU radio puts Lee Oswald on um, on the air a couple of times to talk about his things. And that's where they try to frame him with the defection. And and Lee very cleverly says, well, if I defected, why did they let me back in the country? Because they don't do that. They put you in jail if you defect and give away um, military secrets. At any rate, so that's this stuff that's going on in New Orleans in the August of 1963, making Lee look like a communist, is to facilitate him. He's being told, you've got to transport the bioweapon down to Mexico City. You might even have to take it into Cuba yourself. We need to give you a... Um, pro-Castro image so that they'll let you in the country. And that, that's the excuse behind all this stuff. And, but Lee suspects that they're really setting him up to be the patsy in the Kennedy assassination. Judith Very Baker objected to using a human subject to test this uh, this lethal virus on, and that is why uh, what she was basically fired and went back to Florida, Right. Right, and, and told she was out of medicine. I mean, it, it, one of the things when you sit back and look at this story is realizing that this gal, Ken Prue, for all these newspaper articles and letters and scholarships she's gotten and, and grants she got from the American Cancer Society and everything, she is a whiz kid determined to, and, and the skids are greased for her to be one of the great cancer researchers. 
And after that summer in New Orleans, she never touches cancer again. I mean, she just is out of it. And she starts to become an artist and she gets, I mean, she's married and she starts having babies and stuff. And she um, just never does anything with cancer again. And it's all because of what happened with this thing with killing the patient in, um, in Jackson, Louisiana. Edward Haslam, I'd like to thank you so very much for writing such a very terrific book. Thank you so much. Bonnie, it's been a pleasure. I look forward to hearing your show. I've been speaking with Edward Haslam. Today's show has been Dr. Mary's Monkey, Part 1. Edward Haslam is an independent writer and researcher. He spent the first 35 years of his life growing up in New Orleans and working in the arts. He spent the rest of his professional career as an advertising executive representing some of the largest corporations in America. In the 1990s, he began work on a research project known as Mary, Fairy, and the Monkey Virus, the story of an underground medical laboratory. He is the author of Dr. Mary's Monkey, How the Unsolved Murder of a Doctor, a Secret Laboratory in New Orleans, and Cancer-Causing Monkey Viruses are linked to Lee Harvey Oswald, the JFK assassination, and emerging global epidemics. A new hardback edition updated with groundbreaking new information and photographs was released on July 21, 2014. Visit his website at drmarysmonkey.com. That's D-O-C-T-O-R-M-A-R-Y-S-M-O-N-K-E-Y dot C-O-M. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yarrow Mako. To make comments or order copies of shows, email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. That's F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at G-O-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Visit our website at gunsandbutter.org. Peace, give thanks, live life, and release. You dig me? You got me?